Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The story of the UK is an economy that has got real momentum. What is broken can be repaired. What is ruined can be rebuilt. UK inflation is becoming much more homegrown. We have huge potential as an economy in the UK. This is a time to tell Israel there is a path to peace. Our plan for the British economy is working, but the work is not done. Listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Focusing today on Northern Ireland. Rishi Sunak is there after the restoration of the power sharing executive at the weekend. A move that had a number of historic firsts involved for government in Northern Ireland. The first nationalist first minister in Michelle O'Neill. It's the first time the executive office, all four ministries, are made up of uh, all women. Andrew Muir, the first gay executive minister, represented the North Down constituency for the Alliance Party as well. The first time the finance minister, Quiva Archibald, has a PhD in molecular mycology. Fun facts that you learn from the ministries being handed out in Northern Ireland. But for all of the significance and for all of the historic firsts involved in the restoration of power sharing in Northern Ireland, the thing that we've been hearing most from people and from politicians there are the everyday issues. And this sort of gives us an idea of the things that perhaps voters care about everywhere in the UK. Yeah, and for all the historic significance of it for Rishi Sunak, he seems to be getting a bit outshone, unfortunately. Our Bloomberg Opinion columnist Martin Ivans has a column about Lord Cameron, the Foreign Secretary, of course, grabbing the limelight with his suggestion that the UK could recognise a Palestinian state in advance of a Middle East peace deal. But the point is, he's drafted in the former Prime Minister to help out with foreign policy and it seems like it might not serve him at the election maybe. You've also got Kemi Badenoch, the Trade Secretary, shining on the broadcast round. Sunak ever has been, I think it's fair to say, a bit awkward in front of the camera. The opportunities for gaffes will only continue as we get towards the election. And he kind of seems like the manager who doesn't want the limelight, who wants to get on with the job, And that might not serve him, Stephen. No, and certainly that's the image that he wants to portray anyway. But as you say, perhaps it's the fact that the others in his cabinet might be stronger communicators and better able to advance a cause. Maybe he feels too associated with the challenges that his government is facing, caught up with his immigration policy, perhaps, and it allows other members that if we're thinking at a very selfless party political level, Mm. perhaps for the Conservatives, it might be better to have more of the likes of David Cameron out front um, talking about about important global issues rather than those that might remind people perhaps of things like an inflation crisis or, you know, people's mortgages going up. Yeah, this is the, it comes back to political now, doesn't it? As was questioned in his handling of the non-DOMS affair uh, and his wife's taxes, of course. Does it does Sunak have the political nouns to, to hang on to number 10 when surely a future prime minister needs to stay in the limelight in a general election campaign? Yeah, indeed. And look, the, what we're looking at in terms of the important issues to voters according 
to polling tells us essentially that, you know, if we didn't know it already, that all politics is local. And whereas we can be very worried about big geopolitical issues or foreign policy challenges, what people do care most about are issues like inflation and healthcare. And those are the sort of issues that will become even more in focus as we move toward the general election campaign. And they're also, as we've been saying, the issues that have been in focus in Northern Ireland, where the government is only getting back up and running now after that two year break. Well, let's get the view from Stormont now and a busy day there of getting back to the business of government. Kate Nicholl is an Alliance Party member of the Northern Ireland Assembly for South Belfast. She joins us now. Kate, great to have you on the programme. Now, you were elected to Stormont for the first time in 2022. So this is going to actually be your first time to be able to do the job with the Assembly in session. What's that like? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, uh, it feels like first day of school <laughs> energy around the building today. Um, I was very heavily pregnant um, when uh, I was elected, and I've been measuring the age of my daughter now <laughs> by, by how long the assembly is down. Um, so I'm delighted it's, it's finally back up and really just getting ready to get stuck in. Well, big congratulations to you then. Uh, and your party has now got the most seats in its history in Stormont, Kate. How are you going to use that influence? Yeah, I mean, we went from seven MLAs to 17 MLAs in the last election. We now have two ministers in the executive. Um, and we're really just going to try and and, and use this uh, additional influence to, to progress our kind of inclusive uh, shared future um, forward-thinking policies. Um, and there are a number of us who are newly elected um, who have a, a kind of core policy um, agendas, minds on childcare reform, um, the people trying to progress different things. So yeah, we're really just looking forward to, to, to trying to, to move things forward because after two years of, of stalemate, uh, our public services are crumbling. Um, we are lagging behind in so many areas and there's, there's a lot of work to be done. And a lot of big problems to be fixed, as you say, is the £3.3 billion from Westminster going to be enough to address the challenges in things like public services? It's going to help in the short term, um, but it's it really isn't enough. Uh, and my understanding is we'll be sitting tomorrow for the first time. And uh, the first motion that will be uh, brought to the Assembly will be on placing our public finances on a sustainable footing um, and ensuring that the executive has you know, the resources required to deliver. So yeah, the 3.3 billion is a lot, um, but we we have been underfunded. The Northern Ireland Fiscal Council found that Northern Ireland really needs to increase um, to about 24% um, above equivalent spending in England. Um, we've, we're all asking for a fiscal floor to be put in much like they, they have in Wales. Um, so there, there are certain mechanisms that really need to be put in place if we're going to be able to to support people. 3.3 billion is a lot. It will help um, with pay, but that's not recurrent funding. So there, there are a lot of things that need to be done. And for the executive to to really be able to, to push forward, um, finances need to be in a better position. So that's the priority. The, the Prime Minister, um, I think he's still in the building. I don't know if he's left now, um, but he met with uh, all the parties and this is the messaging he's going to be hearing from all of them. Good to be back up and running, but budget is a, is a problem and how we, how we get our funding um, in a sustainable footing is going to be so important. 
Well, speaking of Sunak, how much do you attribute the uh, this victory to him? Um, <laughs> I, I, I think he has been better than um, some of his predecessors, for sure. Uh, definitely has had more of an interest um, and has been more responsible than Boris Johnson certainly was. Um, the reality, though, is this has been two years of stalemate when it needn't have happened. Uh, the, the Northern Ireland Assembly has no say in uh, the protocol that is a matter between EU and Westminster. So we never thought we should have been down. Uh, we thought it was very irresponsible of the DUP. Um, but grateful that uh, work has been done. Um, grateful to uh, the Secretary of State and um, uh, Julian Smith obviously had a big hand in it too. The Irish government, there have been so many people who have got us to where we are now. Um, and yeah, we're, we're relieved, um, but we don't think it ever should have been down. Diplomatically put. Well, I wonder on that point, though, I mean, after being, you know, the power sharing being suspended for two years, assemblies have had very short lives in recent years. And, and can this arrangement last, do you think? What is the attitude of your party and of the others around the table? Well... When you look at when you look at the last six, seven years, the assembly's been down about thirty percent of the time. We've been up almost as much as we have been down. We have a problem here. Alliance has been really banging the drum for reform since nineteen ninety eight. Uh, the fact that one political party can just collapse a government on their whim um, is not right. And the DUP had this in their manifestos, previous manifestos. Uh, the other parties recognized that it's not sustainable. So the, the case for reforming the institutions um, is now as relevant as it ever was. And that was something that my party raised with the prime minister this morning. It's great that we're back up. It is so good that everyone is entering with, with goodwill and a, a sense of collegiate um, uh, optimism. Um, but there is still the threat that this could all come tumbling down. And so we need to change it. Still elect ministers in the way that we do under DeHaunt, still underpin the principles of, of power sharing and, and, and trust and mutual respect, but make it so that if one party doesn't want to be in government, then they can step aside into opposition, welcome to do that, but don't hold it up for, for everyone else. So we'll continue to, to push with Westminster and the Irish government um, to make, make these changes happen. Well, it sounds like your in-trays absolutely overflowing. What's the priority, reform or public services? Well, for, 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 for all of us, I, I, I guess um, we really need to get um, our, our public finances um, uh, in, in good order. Um, reform is always going to be incredibly important and for Alliance, it, it is very high up our agenda. Personally, childcare reform is, is my main area of interest. We see what's happening in England and um, do, not like, <laughs> do not like how the free hours model works. So we're looking at um, creating a bespoke system and, and that really is the beauty of devolution. We have local ministers, local budgets and we are able to make decisions for local people that, that suit us. So we're finally in a place now where we can start to tailor our policies accordingly and, and hopefully start to deliver for the people of Northern Ireland who have been let down for the last couple of years and we've got a lot to make up for. In an executive that has a whole number of firsts, one of which is you know the, the additional minister for the Alliance Party as well, does it matter for you that Michelle O'Neill is first minister and the first nationalist to hold that position? 
I think it's historic, and I think for um, for m members um, uh, of the community who are nationalists, that really means something, and I, I think it's right to recognise it. Um, for me personally, uh, our um, uh, second ministerial appointee, Andrew Muir, is the first openly gay uh, 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 member of the executive. I think that's historic too. Um, and I think it's just clear that Northern Ireland is changing. We are not... Uh, we are not a place of two communities anymore. We are multiple communities. We're all minorities. And so the the, the aspirations of the, the architects of the Good Friday Agreement to have um, forward-thinking, inclusive, collegiate working um, is as relevant now as it ever was. And um, yeah, we're moving. And, and I, th I think that's great. Um, and so long as we can continue to work together and make sure that everyone is represented and respected, then only good things can come. Well, on that note, Kate, you've got loads to do after all this time. Kate Nicholl, Alliance Party member of the Northern Ireland Assembly for South Belfast. Thanks for joining us. Well, let's talk more broadly about the significance of the weekend's events in Northern Ireland with John Tung, now Professor of Politics at the University of Liverpool. John, great to have you back with us on the programme. So we were just talking to Kate Nicholl there about the significance of Michelle O'Neill taking the position of First Minister at Stormont, the first nationalist to hold that position. Is it more than symbolic, though, that she would have that job? I think it is more than symbolic. It's not going to create a united Ireland in the short or medium term, but long term, it, I suppose it increases some momentum. Uh, got to bear in mind that Sinn Féin, there's every prospect they'll be in government south of the border, so they'll be in government uh, in both jurisdictions on the island of Ireland. Uh, and the fact uh, is that no one really envisaged Sinn Féin being the largest party in Northern Ireland, at the time of the Good Friday Agreement. We don't know where the ceiling for Sinn Féin's support lies. So, the you know, it's not just about Sinn Féin temporarily replacing a Unionist First Minister here. We might have seen the last Unionist First Minister allowing for the fact that the Deputy First Minister uh, holds an equal amount of power. We might have seen the last Unionist First Minister of a polity that was created on the basis of it being a Protestant and Unionist state for a, for a Protestant and Unionist people. So it matters. It matters in terms of the optics. It matters in terms of what it represents. OK, and then Michelle O'Neill has said that there'll be a referendum on Irish unity within a decade. Is that realistic? I don't think it will be within a decade. I think eventually there will be one, but a decade seems pretty sharp to me in terms of timetable. If you look at the poll of polls in Northern Ireland, averaging across different opinion polls using different methods, face-to-face -face or online, where does support for Northern Ireland remaining in the UK uh, arrive at? Unconvincing is the answer. It's only 50% of the population, a bare majority, want Northern Ireland to remain in the UK. But that doesn't mean the other 50% support a United Ireland. That's averaging around 35%. So there's a 15-point gap which Sinn Féin now need to convert into support for their unity project. Not impossible, but still difficult. Not many unionists are going to wake up one morning and say, you know what, I want a united Ireland. The people that Sinn Féin have probably got to convert are those who say they are neither unionists nor nationalists, constitutional agnostics. They contain a lot of don't knows on the constitutional question. And Sinn Féin's got to produce a prospectus for Irish unity, working with others, that is attractive to those people. That's how you get a border poll on. And remember, only the British Secretary of State can call a border poll. And the British Secretary of State is only legally obliged to do so when it appears 
that there is a majority in favour of constitutional change. So, you know, there's still uh, quite a long way to go down that particular road, uh, whilst not ruling out at all in the long term. Yeah, and of course that provision very carefully worded as well to allow latitude for the Northern Secretary to define exactly what uh, that would look like. I do wonder when we think about the the current composition of the executive, it was noteworthy that the DUP and the handing out of ministries under the power sharing agreement didn't choose to take the finance ministry. They went uh, for education instead. So that means that Sinn Féin holds now both the finance and economy departments. Is that a strategy by the DUP to be able to blame economic problems on Sinn Féin? Or am I reading too much into it? No, I think you're correct in your analysis. I mean, if there are two poison chalices in terms of ministries, they are economy and finance, because both the Northern Ireland economy and its finances are currently in a very, very poor state. Um, and there isn't that much money to play with. Yes, Chrissy and Harris has sprinkled gold dust in the form of £3.3 billion in terms of the return to Stormont, but that won't go that far when you've got 15 public sector unions out on strike demanding more pay on a single day recently. So you've got about a million, uh, sorry, a one billion of that allocated to uh, settling public sector pay. What about the NHS uh, waiting list? The worst anywhere in the UK, more than one in four people in Northern Ireland are on an NHS waiting list, urgent cancer referrals being deferred. That will take an awful lot of money to shift that. Uh, so, and Sinn Féin has got to turn around to each ministry uh, wanting more money and saying, actually, you can't have it because we can't, we haven't got that money. So Sinn Féin will, will be, you know, in a, those ministers will be in an awkward position. They'll be saying no to the big spending ministries because the money's not there. That's why, you know, Sinn Féin will be begging a British government for even more money. 3.3 billion is not enough. And you know, that is going to be problematic because Sinn Féin ministers are going to look the Scrooges in this uh, and whether they'll be able to deflect the blame onto the UK government remains to be seen. So if everyone's at each other's throats, how long can this executive last? Well, I was there on Saturday uh, over in Belfast and it felt like a, a big wedding at which there were wonderful speeches and everyone was having a great time. Uh, but as we know, you know, marriages can soon turn uh, to dust uh, fairly quickly. And once the hard work starts, you know, the history of Stormont since the Good Friday Agreement has been one of collapses. It's been missing in inaction more than 40% of the time. In the last seven years, it's been missing 70% of the time. So it's probably, you know, you wouldn't take a short price on another collapse. The rules have changed slightly, which gives a bit more optimism. There wouldn't be an immediate collapse if a party walks out now. There would be a caretaker executive for six months. But ultimately, I think it probably needs reforms. It's still vulnerable to collapse, uh, Stormont, because if the largest party of unionism or the largest party of nationalism walks out, then everything collapses. Nothing has changed in that respect. So it's, it's a leap of faith to simply assume that the parties will stay together. No one's expecting them to live happily ever after. But there may be, at least in the short term, I think, you know, some decent cooperation between the two. They recognise that it's not popular to, to quit the political institutions. Um, but long term, you know, these, these are still parties that have a huge gulf between them. Can they work together on day to day issues? Yes, in the short term. Uh, but they have to part their constitutional ambitions uh, and they have to embrace a mood of cooperation that has too often been missing in the past. Uh, Rishi Sunak's in, in Belfast today. I, I wonder how much credit he can claim uh, for the restoration of power sharing in Northern Ireland. 
some credit can be attributed to Rishi Sunak in the sense that he did negotiate the Windsor framework with the European Union, which was an improvement on the absurd bureaucratic restrictions on the movement of stuffs, whereby you couldn't move sausages from one part of the United Kingdom uh, to another. Windsor, uh, the Windsor framework was about creating green and red channels to ease the pressure on goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland only. And the DUP has further improved that deal and re effectively removed the checks on goods remaining in the UK only. So Rishi Sunak, he certainly needs a few successes to claim in the run-up to the, the Westminster election. He'll certainly be claiming this one. How much people's vote at the Westminster election will be influenced by the return of power sharing in Northern Ireland? I think that's very doubtful indeed. I mean, you wouldn't attribute you know, any West, the outcome of any Westminster election to what goes on in Northern Ireland. So, yes, it'll be added to the Conservative a fairly thin book of conservative recent successes perhaps but it's not going to be decisive in the election of course he's going to bask in things today but he knows really what will actually matter is the overall state of the uk economy not what's going on in northern ireland well more broadly though i mean how important is northern ireland to politicians in westminster and would it be different under a labor government it ought to be more important given that, you know, it's only a generation ago, it, there was a horrific conflict there in which thousands of people died. And it's still the most vulnerable in terms of political collapses and, and uh, still some dissident uh, Republican activity, albeit on a, on a very low level. It ought to be higher up the scale of importance. But remember, there are no votes for the Conservatives or Labour in Northern Ireland. There is a very small uh, vote for the, uh, the Conservatives stand over there, but, but, you know, it's negligible. I mean, there's no real votes for the Conservatives or, or Labour. Uh, and, and that immediately diminishes uh, interest. You can't even join the Labour Party, uh, really, in Northern Ireland. You, you're told to join the SDLP. So if there's no votes in it, and this year is all about votes, you know, how is it going to get higher up the scale? In terms of Labour's approach to Northern Ireland, I mean, Labour is very, very proud of the Good Friday Agreement. Any deviation from the Good Friday Agreement, Labour will, will oppose um, because it's one of their, you know, they would highlight the, their, one of their great achievements in government over the last half a century. So Hillary Benn, if he becomes the next Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, if there is a Labour victory this autumn, it, it will be, you know, continuity the Conservative government, there won't be any difference. He's made very clear, Hilary Benn, that he supports both the Windsor framework and the modifications to it that were achieved by the DUP uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks. So there isn't going to be, it's, it's the only area really of, of clear political bipartisanship between the two main parties. Uh, that was there evident in the Good Friday Agreement. It's evident more than a quarter of a century on. So very symbolic, but not necessarily the votes to incentivise politicians in Westminster to care enough. John Tong, great to have you back on the podcast. That's John Tong, Professor of Politics at the University of Liverpool. Thank you. Yeah, it's interesting to hear that point that um, John was making there about the, the duality of the, the both the bipartisan effort from uh, Westminster, but also this duality of, of what Northern Ireland is. It is a domestic political issue, but also a foreign policy issue and has played so intrinsically into not only the UK's relationship with Ireland, its nearest neighbour, but also with the rest of the European Union since Brexit and how Brexit has had such a an impact on affairs there and thus dominated the whole of the, the post- referendum relationship uh, with the European Union as well. So this is an issue that it brings into focus how again, the interaction of foreign and domestic policy and, and, and how much that can 
impact for voters too and that's not the only foreign policy issue we've been thinking about. No, we've been talking a bit about the shipping crisis in the Red Sea and how tensions in the Middle East could escalate and hit UK inflation. You've got David Cameron, the Foreign Secretary, as I say, making waves for calling for a two-state solution. But we discussed David Cameron's latest comments with Jane Kinnanmont, the Director of Policy and Impact at the European Leadership Network, on why he said them. One of the difficulties has been that most of the world believes in a two-state solution and the Israeli Prime Minister has been saying very openly that he is against it and he will make sure it doesn't happen. So what what um, Cameron is saying is essentially sending a message to Israel that it will not be indefinitely up to them to reject a two-state solution and they may have to accept that they would work with it. And that's probably a you know, message not just to Netanyahu, but other Israeli politicians, because at some point they will have elections. Uh, so they're trying to say, look, you know, other people have to think if they're going to work with the US, UK, etc., they will need to concede that the Palestinians need a state as well. However, for the Palestinians, it all seems really remote. Um, they just think that it's more talk uh, and it's hard to get the credibility, you know, how do we get from where we are today to a situation of those two states living side by side? So that was Jane Kinnanmont, Director of Policy and Impact at the European Leadership Network earlier. Yeah, yet another challenge facing the Prime Minister as well when he comes back from Belfast among the long list of things that he'll have to be tackling. But that effect on inflation going to be very concerning because of the political importance the Prime Minister has had on inflation coming down, of course, in the UK. The risk of something, even if it is from an event like the attacks on ships in the Red Sea, adding to UK inflation, the sort of issue, again, that we can just see how easily this can shoot right up the list of priorities for consumers if it's something that's going to hit them on one of those key issues like how much money they have in their pockets. Yeah, and just to make it even more international, Jay Powell, the Fed chair, raised this issue of the... um, infiltration of geopolitical risks into US economic policy when it comes to the Fed setting interest rates. And it's something that the Bank of England mentioned on Thursday after its decision, as well as flagging the risks from looser fiscal policy, which inevitably we're going to get because it's an election year. As we are just over a month away from the budget and counting down with our giant comedy clock in the studio as well. That is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Woolcock and our audio engineers were Marufal Hussain and Nick Esposito. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers and innovators leading the way from design and culture to technology, science and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.